Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your also and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsley, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going okay. I don't have bed bugs, so I'm excited about it. Good. It's very exciting. <laughs> Listeners, there was a moment this week when that was not a certainty. <laughs> yeah. No, th- there was a concern that I had taken bed bugs back with me or gotten bed bugs at some point yeah. coming back home from Las Vegas, where we met. Yes. It was so fun. I hope yeah. listeners enjoyed our, uh, our live podcast last week. Noel, uh, it will surprise certainly not you i imagine a few of our guests it's way easier to edit a podcast we record in person it's so much (laughs) easier (laughs) well this is why that i said that you should just move to washington you could move to chicago i'm just saying yeah but those winters are really cold like when oh god you're getting me into a whole global warming (laughs) climate change situation no snow in january or february for the first time 150 years but sure (laughs) carbon emissions don't contribute (laughs) mr head of the epa anyways we're gonna we're getting distracted and we can't we can't because we have a fabulous and also super long but fabulous segment at the end of the podcast this week with returning guest friend of the show mo ryan from variety talking about Clexicon, but also reacting and responding to a year since the hundred uh three three oh seven um it just occurred to me that segment for people who don't know about the hundred and lexa and all of that is going to be super confusing um but i don't really i'm okay you know what just do a previously on recap from that one a year ago Cut okay. in some snippets. Yeah. Previously on the Televerse, <laughs> bury your gaze, fi you the hundred WTF. Have you ever watched television? Not cool. I feel like that's enough. Sure. That works. Anyways, yeah, that works. So that's coming at the end of the podcast. Um, uh, I'll have the, the timestamps are in the show notes uh, for the people who are just tuning in for that part of it. But it was wonderful, as we said last week, to actually get to meet in person in Vegas for Clexicon. I think my favorite quote about Vegas, we talked about not being Vegas people, Noel. Um, yeah. Mrs. Prof, of course, the fabulous wife of the fabulous friend of the show, Dr. Bridges, uh, described Vegas as Axe body spray personified. <laughs> It's so true. I feel it's like so true. I read that on Elizabeth's blog, and um, I was just like, "That is per- Mwah! Kiss the air. That was perfect." Um, so we're yeah, good. Not for us, but Clexicon and hanging out in person definitely, yay us. That's definitely our speed. Yes, I think so too. And we 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 went to a Shake Shack. That was fun. Salted and- caramel shake. Very good. Right, and we didn't gamble, so that was also really fun. That was fun. I yeah. didn't lose money. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, we maybe overspent a little bit of money, but we didn't lose any money. No, no. we went to the delicious Egg Slut restaurant with, oh, again, really good too. previously yeah. stated uh, Dr. Bridges and, and Mrs. Prof. Um, and, yeah, it was just it was a good time. Um, so, anyways, more on that later in the podcast. But um, we, we heard from some listeners this week. Um, we had some really fabulous interactions at Clexicon with listeners and not non-listeners and future listeners because uh, we have some um, – I've got some audio from some different uh, 
Klaxicon attendees that I'll be interspersing oh, in the podcast this week. There are a couple of uh, Dr. Bridges sent one in. Um, one of the another attendee, Jess, Jessica, sent one in. Um, hopefully, uh, I'm waiting on a couple emails. Uh, there was a, a woman we met after our panel um, who was who, in from Japan who is going to send us a letter on her thoughts. And so we're going to read that out um, if, mm-hmm. if either this week or next week, if depending on when, when we get it. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's lots of Klexicon talk this week. It was a lot of really great stuff. But we are going to move swiftly on here from our top of the show into our Week in TV because, like, again, March and April are going to try to kill us so many premieres and we have to kick it off with some of the music from and then our thoughts on Harriet Tubman on uh, Underground so are you ready Noel? I'm so ready. So ready. We're going to take a break, listen to a little music and come back with our week in TV. Turn rain, turn rain on the thunder. Tell a storm I'm new. I'm a wild, come march on the This week in TV, uh, as you heard from that clip coming in of some of the music from the the premiere episode, we're going to be talking about Underground, Contraband, A Feud, Betty and Joan, its premiere pilot, The Americans, Amber Waves, which, again, Noel is not a fan of The Americans, but I will talk about that premiere a little bit. I'll also talk about the finale of Man Seeking Woman, Blood, and Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Dennis's Double Life. Then we'll both uh, have some thoughts on Steven Universe, Tiger Philanthropist, Legion, Chapter 5, and we'll round things out with The Good Fight, henceforth known as Property. But first up, we've been excited about this premiere, Noel, since like the the instant season one of Underground ended. How did the Underground season two premiere hold up for you? I, I really liked it. I was surprised at how quickly the hour went. Um, mm-hmm. And in part also, but I think the big thing about this was, this particular episode especially, was how much it felt like the show hadn't like lost a step in between season one and season two in that they recognized a lot of what was working really well in season one and decided to up those factors. So we got a lot of heist action setup type stuff in this week's episode. But they were leaning really heavily into that stuff. And I was really, really happy to see that. And we also had like a callback to the first season of running through the woods with some rap music playing. And then we got Harriet Tubman holding an axe and a rifle (laughs) at two slave catchers and being like, my arm's getting tired and you guys can either take five dollars or get two bullets. I'm just like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Pretty much. Um, they, I, I think the way you put that was, I absolutely agree. Uh, they identified some of their strengths and really played into them. And they also identified some of their weaknesses and shot them in the head, um, yeah. which I think is, and, and I say that as someone who was a defender of that part of the show, 
um, more than many others. Uh, but I am very interested to see what the cliffhanger for this first episode means for the rest of the season. I really yep. liked the different characters they introduced. Uh, super excited to see Jessica Nicole, who of course was at Klexicon. Um, I didn't get to go to her panel. I was so bummed, but she uh, she's always fabulous. And so I, I really look forward to spending more time with her character, Georgia. Um, of course, Aisha Hines was fabulous as, as um, Harriet Tubman. Um, I was, I'm very intrigued. Bo Keem Woodbine. I did not hear that he was on the season. That was a wonderful surprise for me. Right. Yeah. But I need to know where Cato is, like, now. Yes. <laughs> I I need to know as well. But I think that there was enough in this episode that I wasn't, like, immediately concerned. And I think, it for me anyway, I was, I was really grooving on Ernestine's new setting. And all of that 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 entailed i thought it was really really helped like really kind of reground us and also put us into this new space that ernestine finds herself in for better well not for better for much much worse and that i think kind of helped keep me from being like oh where is Cato? because we got the ernestine stuff and then we got uh elizabeth and her sewing circle of pistols hidden <laughs> everywhere and here all of that. for and, it yes but also like their conversation about the effectiveness of the abolitionist movement and what's involved in doing this kind of work just again i just didn't i want to know what happened to cato but i didn't in while i was watching the episode i wasn't thinking about it mm -hmm. and i thought that that's a real testament to everything else that they were like as really quickly and really effectively setting up yeah, I, it's not a mark against the episode that we don't right. see Cato at all. It, like, it just more is a, and we haven't even seen Cato yet sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I absolutely agree. How wonderful to see Adina Porter back on the show and to see Pearlie Mae and and Ernestine interacting again. Those two actors are terrific together and they barely got scenes last year. And to see this yeah. version of Pearlie Mae too. Um I just I loved I loved what we were getting with that and to see a, like even just a different type of plantation this is a rice plantation um to see a different culture uh to see Ernestine in such a different situation um I just continue to to love the work that all these actors are doing and to to have the show continue its dedication to the experience the daily painful experiences of these characters it's not all Harriet Tubman with an axe in the woods there's some of that and it's wonderful, but they don't let that become the show entirely. Right. And I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, there's that whole segment of Noah being inspected and mm -hmm. because they're in WGN, even though like WGN's like still wading into the original scripted programming waters and figuring out what their brand is for one of a better word. But I mean, they don't shy away from the fact that Noah's naked in that for that entire segment. There's a number of profile shots. There's a number of shots of him from behind. And even like Ernestine is basically full frontal nude, but in a very out of focus way so that no one can get upset like censors yeah. or advertisers. But the show is finding ways to really speak to experiences in creative ways, in artistic ways, but in ways that still work for their characters and for their narrative. And that's just a real testament to what the underground team is doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because if you had someone like with a conveniently placed blanket, it just would feel really awkward. So their approach right. to to just play with the lens and the focus and to match where her headspace is with that, while also conveniently skirting any issues of nudity that they might have to deal with, I thought worked really well. So yeah, I, I think this is a really strong premiere. The music is terrific. Yes. Oh, it's so, so many licensed songs this week. Yeah. Like their budget went up and yeah. it's, it, it's really good. It's, it's very good. They're used all really, really effectively. Yeah. And uh, thank you just on the podcast level. I look forward to, to <laughs> yoinking some of those songs for our, our interstitial music for the next few weeks, but um, yeah, very strong premiere. And I'm excited to be talking about underground in, t- in turn in time, I should say for Harriet Tubman day, which as we record is today, which is also today's also Buffy's 20th anniversary, but it's also Harriet Tubman day. So I think the timing of that was, I don't know if it was intentional, but I appreciated it this week. Um, let's move on though to our next show feud Betty and Joan which you've already talked about a bit um, uh, but um, I've now seen the first episode I thought it was really solid um, I I had fun with it it didn't grab me as immediately as some of the other shows uh, new shows this year have certainly not the way that um, people versus OJ did last year but um, these are strong performances I appreciate how straightforward the show is with its no 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 we're not about bitchiness we're as they have Catherine Zeta-Jones say this is going to be about pain and how that manifests itself and how that leads these two women towards you know where they're going to be going um, I, I, I have you seen what whatever happened to baby Jane I have, but I haven't seen it since like high, early high school, like okay. early late middle school, early high school. So it's been a it's been a very long time because I I watched it when I was trying to work through the AFI's top one hundred. Uh, so I haven't seen it though. It's like I'm renting it actually really soon. I think because mm-hmm. I need to rewatch it prior yeah. to them actually like getting into the movie. Since this first episode is very much about them getting to the point where they can make the movie and. Hence the reason why I think it's it's very solid, but there's also not a lot like there's not a whole whole lot like getting happening just yet. Mm-hmm. You're getting a lot of seeds. So have you seen the movie? Or... Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I definitely. Much. But I hadn't ever connected because when I saw it, I wasn't as knowledgeable about some of the behind. The... I didn't know about the behind the scenes stuff certainly, sure. um, and like that idea of of Betty Davis's like baby the baby Jane makeup and costume as a very pointed uh, response to Joan Crawford. I did not know that any yeah. about any of that, and that was like so. So so having an, an you know an awareness of and um, pretty like low level, but uh, but not so like not super in depth. Like I don't know all you know, the the film as well as um, many I'm sure many film scholars and fans do. But I really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm I remember it well enough that I'm. I'm getting all these fun um contact new context to add to my awareness of the film and uh and and having that filled in and watching those two like the relationship between the show and the film you know like the the fun they're having with that i i've really enjoyed that already so um i don't know we'll see we'll see how the rest of the season shapes out but it's looking like it'll be one of the uh, so far, at least based on this first episode very solid very interesting um not as essential as some of the other shows that are airing right now we're about to air um but a really solid um campier more fun 
entry into the dramas and let's be honest we're gonna we're gonna need some less like leftovers is coming back americans is already back um yeah we're gonna need some some fun so i I, well you're gonna need those i i you aren't i can't watch leftovers um because i haven't seen seasons one and two and I I don't need to I don't watch the Americans. Yeah. So, so it's just okay. like eh, I'm gonna need some laughs. You're so gonna I need will that. appreciate Me, them. Eh. Well, American Crime comes back this week. Yes. So I I'm definitely going to need it because that's my jam and that's mm-hmm. just gonna be really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that sounds like it probably will be. But more on that next week. Any final thoughts uh, for this week on Feud? Okay. Well, then let's move right on to our next show, which is The Americans, and uh, it came back for a really solid uh, fifth season premiere. I love the stuff that they did uh just throwing us right in with this new character uh no they they entered they start this season season and the they're playing the the two leads are playing uh the parents of a completely different character uh like like uh an asian foreign exchange student <laughs> like or an adopted kid and we're like wait what's going on what's but but the the trust that the show has for its viewers to just go with it and get it um makes allows them to do something like that and it, it's this is a super fun way to start the season uh the stuff that we're getting with like the, there's this long digging scene that worked a lot better for me than it sounds like it did for many other people i just went with it i, I was fine with it um but i thought that was effective um and tied up some some loose ends from last season very nicely uh we didn't even see <laughs> we didn't even see uh henry this week which was uh sort of entertaining um hopefully he will pop back up but um i i liked uh what we got with page um i continue to uh like the way that they are rolling out sort of where um elizabeth and and philip are right now and i just i was so glad to have the show back i know that it's not your thing but i i do really love it and um the 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 knowledge of these characters and this world is now so dense in its fifth season like any any drama that really uh, is worth its salt by the time you get to or any show really by the time you get to a fourth season a fifth season you should know these characters really really well and the enjoyment can even just come from living with them seeing them and and watching them um let alone like a, some new threat some new twist or anything like that it's more just from spending time with these people so i'm sure there will be higher stakes things coming shortly on the show but for right now i was just glad to be back in that world so um yeah certainly on board for the fifth season of the americans i also really liked the season finale of man seeking woman blood which saw josh get married so and and they're gonna keep him yeah josh and lucy have been dating all season and the season ends with with their wedding and i i just love that the show is so fully embraced Man found woman is season yeah. three, <laughs> Se- season four. If they season yes, four. if they get renewed, okay. if they don't get renewed, it works beautifully as a series finale. The the okay. last shot mirrors the first shot, um, it, but it inverted so everybody else it's raining and they're getting birds pelted on them. But the two of them, there's like a ray of of sunlight around them, in a really lovely way. Um, the being willing to just Im- to abandon the air quotes conceit of the show. Um, but by by doing so, actually embrace the real conceit of the show, um, which is abandoning the new new love interest every few episodes thing, and instead like imba- abandoning the seeking, and in engaging more fully that allowed them to engage more fully with these different um, flights of fancy and and um, genre pursuits that they, they that they do that it gave so much more energy and creativity and um, and just. 
new situations and new new avenues to explore in this season so that's something that i'm sure they will continue if they get another season um but yeah i I can't think of a comedy recently that i've watched that has done that in a third season like maybe like something like parks and rec where they go okay this isn't we need to change something like yes we've got gotten good stuff out of this but it we should be better than we are we need to change something here's what we need is is seemingly drastic change but it actually just lets all of the strengths of the the series come into tighter focus Um, it was time to do that in this third season i'm glad that they did and and they've really i think benefited from that tremendously Um, it's been a strong season hopefully if they get a fourth season we'll get even more time with some of the peripheral characters um now that they've shown they were willing to have half the characters be from lucy's perspective maybe we can get some episodes from mike's perspective and actually use eric andre you know um get more than one episode from lucy's perspective each season uh it would be lovely to see an episode from the parents perspective there's Mm -hmm. a lot that they could do and now that they've experimented with not just being in josh's head for most of the episodes um and that's worked very well for them i think they'll be more likely to maybe try something that in the future but anyways uh third season of man seeking woman is very strong um man uh we also had the always sunny finale uh dennis's double life which sees dennis leave the gang at the end uh, and go off to be a father to his five-month-old kid <laughs> that he reveals that he has. Uh, uh, and the, I mean, I don't expect them to actually stick with that for very long, but maybe they will. Maybe it'll be like the season of Fat Mac, the season of No Dennis, and the gang having to like react to Dennis not being there. I feel like at the very least you could get a few really solid episodes of that. I also appreciate them shaking up the dynamic with Charlie and the waitress, where Charlie and the waitress actually get together um, in this episode. And then, of course, Charlie immediately regrets, um, like, wants distance and space from her. So um, they're willing, again, their willingness to change up things in their 12th season now, um, it 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 gives a lot more freedom and and allows for a lot more fun. Um, I don't think this is um, one of their best seasons it's a very strong season um and i would still say that the the strongest episode was the first episode the gang turns black um but it but it's been again for a a show in its 12th season their hit to miss ratio is ridiculous and um i think this episode this finale episode was another strong indication of that um yeah always sunny going into 13 next year that's that's remarkable. So uh, way to go, Always Sunny Gang. Just, we'll see what happens with Glenn Howerton if he's back next year. Uh, but regardless, I have a lot of confidence in this creative team. And yeah, that that uh, I I, th- I think that's an interesting choice of which character to change. Because um, you'd think maybe D now that Caitlin Olsen has her has the make and just got picked up for another season. But um, but I think having Dennis leave is one of the more interesting choices they could do if they were going to do that within the group. So we'll see what happens next season. But for right now, um, Always Sunny finale was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, let's move on, though, to Steven Universe, because I need to get some water, and you need to talk for a little bit. So, Noel, okay. what did you think of episode we actually watched together, Tiger yes. Philanthropist? Right, so we watched this at Clexicon uh, on uh, in the hotel room, and it was it was it was a fun light episode, I thought, but it was still really it still carried like some weight, and it felt in a lot of ways like Coda 
to a lot of the um, uh, smoky quartz stuff in a lot of ways. I felt like, in so far as this was an episode about Stephen and Amethyst's relationship, specifically the underground uh, wrestling uh, event that they apparently had been doing every week, <laughs> uh, which is a detail I love. Like it was just the yeah, when we're not on missions and it's Saturday night, we go and beat up humans um, <laughs> for fun. And but it. It was such a sweet little episode about their friendship, but also counterbalanced by issues of fandom and change and how we don't necessarily respond to those very well as fans. <laughs> we're all Lars. <laughs> right. We're all Lars at one point or another when it comes to something that we love. And Lars was just like, this premise doesn't work anymore. What are you doing? <laughs> and it, it, it was very funny. And But I also love the fact that Sadie is just like, isn't Tiger billionaire steven that's steven right it's definitely yeah. steven <laughs> isn't it i loved that that was great yeah and but all of it it was just a very sweet episode i liked um the return slash creation of a bunch of new tag team teams oh for the okay. fight who were your favorites because they uh, were I really i really like the fine looking boys <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna go with the fine looking voice too, um, but the 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 various like when they keep calling out the different uh, tag teams that was delightful and that's the kind of yeah. thing that I yeah that I loved even for. Yeah, so it was just a, it was a really fun episode and yeah. Uh, what do you what do you what did you think about it? Anything else in particular that really kind of stuck with you? Tiger Millionaire is one of my favorite episodes, particularly my favorite early episodes of sure. Steven Universe. It was one of the first episodes that helped me really see the potential of the mm -hmm. of the series as as an analog and as um, uh, a way of expressing a very complex character motivations um, within a eleven minute framework right. and and you know without having everybody talk about their feelings all the time um so i was very glad to revisit those characters purple puma and and um tiger philanthropist now um but yeah it was nice to have a bit of a lighter episode after all the heavy stuff we've been having with steven and his mom and uh and it was a very different kind of change of pace than rock and all so it was again i like i'm enjoying the 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 change in tones that we've been seeing um the last few episodes and the fact that they are are coming back to issues like rose often enough that you always feel the weight of that and what steven's dealing with so like he i don't think he responds to amethyst leaving like and quitting this thing that they do together in the same way if this happens last season. So right. I uh, agree. Yeah. So, so having, because it wasn't last week's, it's not as he doesn't feel as upset as he would if we didn't have the space of Ragnaldo. Um, but if it was a couple episodes later, then we might not make that same connection um, with where Steven's at. So I liked that. Um, well, we would have. Well, we but... would have, but yeah, but I think they're doing a really good job of their pacing of these different, of the balancing of the the standalone with the serial, and um, having like, this is just like a nice way to kind of show again, like you said, the, that we're like where we're at with Smoky Quartz and the, with Amethyst and Stephen's relationships, but also this idea of of Stephen maturing, growing up, and changing, and and having new priorities, um, and sometimes you need um, help with that. You know, or sometimes you need uh, like a nudge and and 
hopefully when we're doing that with our friends for our friends um we're a little little more sensitive than amethyst was here but i i I thought on the whole it was a a nice fun episode a lot of great comedy loved the stuff with lars and sadie and um uh, yeah it was it was a lot of fun less fun um aubrey plaza uh like nightmare demon on legion uh though super fun the menswear like that suit fabulous great it was so good so uh, it was my favorite part of the episode. Oh, no, you were not a fan. What did you think of Chapter 5? I think a lot of my reception to Chapter 5 is going to hinge on what happens in Chapter 6. Um, in no small part because I need to know what that last little scene with everyone in a therapist um, setting, mm-hmm. how that works in a lot of ways. And... because the show just plays with reality and Ben's reality um, in so many different ways, in part because of David's powers, but also in part because of the creature within him, let's say um, the parasite or the odor or however they want to describe it within the context of the episode, um, like has influenced things and influences like our perception of things. Then I don't know how much of this is, the pan out that we've been in a snow globe asylum all this time. Um, and I don't think that's where they're going, but I need that's like, that's not some... where they're going. No, no. <laughs> but I also just kind of like arched my eyebrow and went, I don't know how much necessarily more of this I need, but also this is basically where I was with, it. I was just like, we're getting a lot of momentum here, but I'm not necessarily interested. I'm interested in the perspective shift and that we're going to give Sid a lot of, hopefully a lot more like perception in what is going on in a way. And I'm very excited about that, but yeah, I just, I don't, I wasn't like a huge fan of this in a lot of ways, apart from Dan Stevens is just killing it. So good. He's really, really good here. Like this is creepy. And also super, He's super creepy. He's super arrogant, but he's also like super vulnerable in a couple of scenes. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was a, it was a really great performance like that. And the menswear were like the best things about this episode. (laughs) And, um, that those were the two things I really latched onto. Cause like, while I was watching, I was DMing a friend of mine who had already watched it. And I just went, Dan Stevens is being really arrogant and he's leaning into it. And then I was just like, David's being really arrogant, but Dan Stevens is doing a really good job playing that. Yeah. And that's, that's what I latched onto was how just really changed facially, vocally, posturally that Stevens was in this whole new purse, like with Lenny slash yellow eyes or whatever is in control was just like came through like a bolt. And I really, I really appreciated that. Uh, Yeah, it was, this episode for me was like a, a shoot up for him. Like he's been good, but yeah. I thought this was like a real stark uh, difference. Like, like I thought it was performance and what they were giving him allowed him to really show so much more range. Um, yeah, it was terrific. Uh, I, I, I think the difference in our reactions to the end is I, it sounds like I'm much more willing to go with and trust the, the writers and the showrunners about that ending um, I'm yeah. I'm more like okay cool let's see what it is. Um, whereas it sounds like you're more uh, are we doing yeah. this? And yeah okay fair. I think that's fair. I think it's absolutely fair. I hear where you're coming from with that, and we'll we'll see next week. Um, I th- there was so much for me. I really enjoyed this episode. I liked the the style um, and the the audio like the the dropping out the audio for the the that whole I guess sequence. I 
really, really care about Carrie and Carrie at this yes. point. And the yep. last couple episodes have been what has done that. But like watching him take on her injuries, they're because like, why'd you have to let him kick in in the crotch so much? I thought that was terrific. And then when she comes back out, uh, you know, when, when uh, Mrs. Bird, like Melanie pulls her out and he's like, no, no. She's like, yes, you're coming out. And then Carrie comes out with a spiked bat to kick some butt. Uh, I was both like, yes, but also very worried about yes. Carrie, like not young Carrie, but uh, not, but I guess in now very injured dude Carrie. Um, so I'm actually probably most connected with them of all the characters. Uh, I like that they do so fully commit to answers here. I like that they keep the rampage off screen. Um, I am vaguely interested in um, shapeshifter dude being with them and having to theoretically be an ally. Uh, that could be a lot of fun. And I like that. I mean, it, it, it's, smacks a little bit of stretching for time like this is episode next week will be episode six so i feel like it'll probably be episode six in the asylum or whatever and then they'll get out of the mind space and then seven and eight will be the two-part finale like that's sort of what i would anticipate so as long as they make sure that there is a reason that we're seeing what we're seeing in the asylum next week as long as it's just like a full episode long alt bottle episode for some reason um then i am game for seeing the characters in a new situation um but no i i, I really did i, I like this episode a lot more than more than you did i think um i want to have to just make sure i'm not being seduced by the style and making sure i'm connecting with substance as well so i'll have to think on that a little bit more um but well but I, think- I mean you just have to remember that so much of my response to this is couched in just like fargo side-eyeing yeah. and yeah. just like i'm always i'm waiting for shoes to drop basically and mm-hmm. any little reason for me to get skittish is a good enough reason for me to get skittish and i think that's where a lot of my response is coming from as well for, for good reason as well you mean yeah. It's understandable. Um, a show that neither of us are skittish about, though, is The Good Fight. We have uh, Henceforth Known as Property, which I, I really liked the, the the central case this week and the yeah. way that that um, was handled. Um, the the is this, this is a new judge, right, who has this thing about cell phones, or is he a recurring judge from Good Wife? No, I'm pretty sure that judge has appeared before. Okay. I don't remember his – I want to say the cell phone stuff is something that's recurred. I don't think he's done it with watches before. Okay. Um, but I'm almost positive he's appeared before, but I have Judge Glatt in my head from this There's episode. a lot of, there's so many judges. Yeah, there's so many uh, judges. <laughs> <laughs> um, you had said that we got a break from uh, the Rendells this week. I was so relieved and I did not miss them at all. What did you think of Henceforth Nose Property? Well, I really like the central case too. And I really liked how it navigated a lot of really kind of thorny issues and property law, family law, and what constituted all of these things without necessarily like totally getting into them. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like, as like a big social idea, but within the confines of this case and how it explored these concepts, I thought it was really, really fascinating. And I enjoyed how they got them in the end by, uh, you know, calling Britain and saying, hey, by the way, this is happening on your shores. Are you guys okay with this? And then going, no, and (laughs) that canceling everything. And I I liked how all of that played out. Uh, But for me, like the big takeaway from this episode was all the fake news stuff 
um, even though I'm not entirely sure that that's necessarily how Twitter bots work. And also that's mm -hmm. not what Twitter's interface looks like anymore, but yeah. kudos on keeping that updated. Yeah. Um, but all this fake news stuff that Maya had to deal with and then having the master of lying and reality bending and fake news in the form of Matthew Perry's Mike Receiver return was just perfect. It was such great symmetry that I loved, I just loved that that's when they decided to bring Kristeva back. Well, back, but have Kristeva join for a little while this, this spinoff because it was perfect. Like Kristeva just lies constantly. And as you see in this episode, and for folks who had never seen him on The Good Wife before, they get a very clear indication of just how really horrible this man is. And I was talking about this with um, some Good Wife super fans that um, I know from Twitter who had read my reviews for a number of years. And I, one of the things that we agreed on is that Kristeva is much worse now in our new social political climate than he necessarily seemed before. Like a liar that lies was something very different when Kristeva first showed up again about a police shooting, if you'll remember, on the Blue Ribbon Commission. But now he's dealing with police brutality for the DOJ, but now his lying just seems so much more worse because of the climate that we live in now. Do you did you feel that way too? Did he feel like just even more of a slime threat than he necessarily did like on The Good Wife to you? Well, it's because that idea of altering reality um Alter, altering the public record and what is accepted as reality um, has even, at least for us, for us privileged yeah. white people, uh, has even more weight and more like the sense of, no, that can just happen. And millions of people will just believe it and not do their research. That will be, can become the public record when people like Christiva uh, are in charge uh the the reality of that and the threat of that and the de this destabilizing nature of that has been made abundantly clear um and not just by our news by our political climate but by a guy taking a gun to a pizza parlor you know because he believed fake news because of, like the real immediate threats that we have seen play out in our news because of this uh, specifically of fake news and i wanted to really enjoy when he gets finds that fake news article like that moment and get this feel like aha he's gonna think that's he's gonna get hoisted by his own fake news and and but i don't feel like that's actually where they're going with it i feel like i feel like maya's just gonna get further screwed by this i would really like for him to get screwed by some fake news though i don't know what do you think is that supposed to be a sinister last moment or a triumphant last moment uh, well, I mean, it's a sinister moment because, I mean, this come. I, I can tell you that this comes back this week because mm -hmm. um, I've already seen this week's episode. Um, yeah, so I, hashtag screener privilege. Ha hashtag screener privilege. So I don't want to say much because yeah. I know what happens uh, in this week's episode. I will just say that you will enjoy this week's episode and what happens. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it's very – he uses he, – he sees this as ammunition. Like, he even, like mm – -hmm points to it at the end of this episode and he's just like this is this is what we're dealing with here mm -hmm. and i mean so he's adapting lies as reality which is what he does and so he's going to find any he doesn't care yeah it doesn't matter to him because it suits his purposes and that's that's all chris Deva cares about is that whatever he says and does suits his purposes and that's mm -hmm. all he cares about yeah 
Well, that's interesting. I look forward to the next episode then even more. But um, yeah, it was a fun episode. It was, uh, I, again, I just always enjoy the pacing of the show. I enjoy the, the, the writing and the performances from everyone too. Just like, Delroy Lindo, I've, I've missed him so much. I'm so glad. Yeah. You know, he's on my TV again. Um, and that's how I feel about most of the cast. So yeah, it was, it was another fun episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very fun episode and terrific acting. And um, I guess one of the things I want to mention, ask you real quick is, do you feel like this is a show that needs to be like on TV TV as opposed to on the streaming platform? Because there was a conversation with Emily Nossbaum and a couple of other folks that I saw, like went in and out of today on Twitter about Nossbaum really wanting the show to be on CBS in no small part because of the show's very current social political commentary and awareness and just navigating that whole thing because one of the things that you and I discussed and has been discussed a lot of other places is that the show doesn't feel like a streaming show in a lot of ways and when we have more time this is something I think we should dig into like Mm -hmm. next week but and just that idea of whether or not this needs to be like on tv tv as opposed to people who are willing to pay seven bucks a month to see it uh week to week and that it feels kind of buried but how do you feel about that idea uh i do wish it was on cbs um because it's really good and i think a lot of people aren't seeing it because of where it is i know none of my family is watching it and they would like this show (laughs) well they can just use your login (laughs) well yes but but they're not gonna watch on a computer okay that's not gonna happen um so i do think it's a shame um and i don't think that I don't think that the good fight is enough to sustain the audience for the good fight is enough to sustain CBS streaming. So I don't know why they launched all access with this without having another show, at least one, if not a whole like legitimate, like pretty serious lineup ready to, to, to finish up, to add as this one's finishing up. Like this is, the show is going to be done in like a month and a half. Yeah. And then everyone's going to cancel their all access. So what? Like they don't have a date for Star Trek yet. So why not put this on CBS and get so much more money out of it? I don't understand. Well, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for that in terms of just their economics. Apart from the fact that the Good Wife, the Good Wife audience was always very wealthy. So like they're an audience that has the disposable income to like find the find the show and watch it and be like, Oh, $7. And, but your point about them just canceling it afterwards, I think is really well taken because that's very, very, very true because there's a lot of their, the all access back, the all, a lot of the all access library is available elsewhere. Um, and that's kind of a problem, which I'm sure they're going to remedy very, very quickly. But yeah, no. So I'm more so of the opinion that I don't think that this would get on the air on CBS. Okay. Um, just not even from the fact that Lucas swears like a sailor, which is my favorite thing in the world, <laughs> but that just topically and politically, it's too overt, I think, for CBS in a lot of ways. Okay that I don't think CBS would necessarily be comfortable with that. And this is a good thing to like think about when you watch next this coming week's episode is okay. to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. And see how that plays out. I think we'll, we'll let's circle back to this idea that I know I just asked you and expected a nice thoughtful response, but keep it in mind and we can make yeah. this like an ongoing conversation based on what happens this week. 
Okay. Any yeah. final thoughts on The Good Fight? No, just that it's really delightful. And I want to talk about it more, Just in, but this episode was just another example of, I think, how well-tuned this show is, apart from the Rendell Fund stuff, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, is still easily the weakest part of the show. Um, but just still, I'm sort of like, I don't know quite where they think they're going in another six episodes, is mm-hmm. like my other question. Like, for their big arc, and for some of the, like, the Diane stuff, I'm not convinced that they... Th- it almost feels like I'm still gearing up for a 22-episode season, but we're almost halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. Um, more on that next week. Um, what wins your week in TV? Um, that's a good question. I think I'm going to give it to the Underground premiere this week just for... Having it back in my life made me very, very happy in a week that I was very tired and worried about bed bugs. But then I got Harriet Tubman threatening the two white slave catchers. And I was just like, everything is okay in the world for the next hour. And I'm okay with that. So th- mm-hmm. it wins my week in TV. What about you? I want to throw a little love to Bob's Burgers. A few Gert men was so good. <laughs> so good. Um, also, a uh, shout out to Throwing Shade, which had uh, like a mini segment on Barrier Gaze this week. Didn't mm-hmm. mention Lexa or Clexicon, but I thought it was awesome that they did a little thing on Barrier Gaze. Um, but, uh, oh, and also Blackish for Toys Aren't Us. I thought that was also a really yeah. particularly notable episode. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's underground. It has to be underground. I mean, like, yes, <laughs> I watched all of When We Rise, and that was fine, and I enjoyed it, even though it wasn't great. But, like, Harriet Tubman <laughs> with guns, and also Rosalie being badass, too. The fact that, that Harriet Tubman yeah. didn't... Oh, completely outshine Rosalie yes. says a lot about uh, Journey Smollett and her performance too. So mm-hmm. um, we just love underground here. What can we say? Yeah. Um, now a few show notes at the uh, end of the segment here. You can find a post for the episode up at theteleverse.org. Leave us a comment and let, let us know what you thought of the week's TV or looking ahead to our next segment, what you thought of Clexicon, if you attended or if you didn't. Um, you can also email us theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us up in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And we're also up in Stitch and we would appreciate any ratings or reviews at either place um, that does help other people find the show. Um, also, you can like our page on Facebook and send us a message or start up a conversation there. And we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And you can find me writing, recapping The Flash and The Good Fight over at tvguide.com. And now uh, we're going to take a break, uh, hear a little bit of music, more music from Luis TV, but then uh, go into a couple different audio clips from different uh, Clexicon attendees talking about their experiences. And then we'll go into our interview uh, with Mo Ryan of Variety talking about our thoughts on reflecting in the past year, uh, but also specifically about Clexicon 2017. So we'll be right back after this.
I'm Elizabeth Bridges, and I was one of the uh, speakers at the con. I also moderated a couple of panels, including Allies in the Media, which uh, included our friends here from the Televerse. And uh, yeah, it was, it kind of really blew away all of my expectations. I didn't, I mean, in a way, I didn't have any expectations because I really didn't know it was just, it, what it was going to be like. But when I got there, any expectations I might have had were blown away um, just in terms of the attendance and just the atmosphere there. You know, um, I've been to a number of fandom events, you know, being a sci-fi fandom nerd myself kind of all my life. I've always been a fan of something kind of starting with Star Wars and moving forward from there. And uh, it really just, um, you know, to be a queer fan among queer fans was something really special that I hadn't experienced before. And just, you know, to have that as the focus and there being this sort of political dimension of the focus on representation was just incredible. And to have everybody there already be on the same page and not have to explain anything, to have everybody already just get it was was amazing. Uh, some highlights for me, obviously, were, um, you know, the fact that I got to be there and contribute and take part um, was, you know, on the one hand, I had to miss some things. And obviously, that's unfortunate. I, I wasn't there for the the shoot panel and some of the other panels that I really wanted to be there for. Um, the, um, the, the queer people of color was something I wanted to attend. Some of the other panels I wanted to attend, but I had was either uh, doing my own um my own uh, moderating or or panels or preparing for those. And so I had to miss some things, which was unfortunate. But um, but I I really appreciate that all that stuff was going on. Uh, And then um, the the party at uh, the Havana Room in the Tropicana was just over the top. Amazing. (laughs) I cannot stress how much fun that was. Um, and yeah, just being able to experience that with everybody and to be able to meet folks that I had only known from online was great. And, um, it was super weird to have people recognize me from my writing and just from my, um, presence online and wanting to come up and meet me and, and take pictures. And I was happy every single time that happened and I wanted to hug everybody and, um, I, I wish I could have met more people and I hope if there is a next time and I really hope there is that um, I just get to meet, you know, more folks and um, hug them and tell them thank you for, for reading my blog. And um, yeah, I just I really loved Clexicon and I'm a super Clexicon nerd now. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to pick um, one panel or one interaction or one thing that stood out. Um, what would it be? I mean, the real standout for me is just personal, and it's it's super dorky. But um, I I spoke to um, to uh, Dominique Provost Chalkley at the of Guinona Herb. She plays Waverly Herb, um, and at the at the Cocktails for Change party. And okay, I, I mean, I'm a pretty big fan of Nicole Hot, um, played by Kat Burrell. And so, I, you know, I wanted to talk to her, but I also went over and talked to Dominique and. Um, she is mesmerizing in real life. Um, I, I just want to say that um, I, I'm not one to fangirl or be starstruck. I've met some pretty famous people in my life and have never been weird in any way about it. And outwardly, when I was talking to her, I hope I wasn't in any way weird, but um, she looks you right in the eye when she talks to you and, like, touches you on the shoulder, on the arm, and just 
really listens and it really has just an incredible amount of presence in a way that people usually don't. And um, I don't know, I kind of fell in love with her while I was talking to her. And this sounds super weird to say, and I feel weird saying it, but um, she just has an incredible amount of presence of a sort that I've not experienced with a lot of people before in my life. And um, and so I, uh, I just really enjoyed talking to her and felt very listened to and spoken to. And, um, and that was a very strange experience to have. And I think she has some kind of magical powers and I'm not the only person to report this. Um, I know several other people who spoke to her and, and said the same thing. And, um, she has an incredible amount of presence that all I, that's all I can say. And, um, it was a really striking, <laughs> it was a really striking meeting. Yeah, I've and, also um, seen that reported other places as well. So yes. you're, you're in good company. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had to, um, after the party, my, my wife didn't go to it cause she's not a big meeting the stars kind of person, but, um, yeah, I actually had to go back upstairs and, and confess the whole thing to her. And she's just like, whatever, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> But she just kind of laughed at me. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a really striking moment, and just it I don't know everything. I mean, it was just such a it was such a great convention. I I don't know. I like I said, I'm everything I'm gonna say just is gonna be gushing. I don't know. Okay. Well, then that makes <laughs> my last question very straightforward for you. Klexicon 2018, if there is one, are you going? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no question. And I think we've assuming it happens, and assuming they get. Uh, a definite invite. Uh, the folks from One Day at a Time, the updated One Day at a Time on Netflix, have already said they would love to go. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's it's been stated on Twitter already, uh, right from them. So, um, so Clexicon, if you're listening, uh, we already have some guests. So, um, so <laughs> <laughs> let's get going with that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bridges, uh, for coming back on. And uh, listeners, you can check out more. Uh, of your thoughts at your blog uh, if you want to plug it yeah it's uncannyvalley.us and my next post is going to be about uh, the 20th anniversary of Buffy the Vampire Slayer so people should check that out thank you again for your time two Klexicon attendees wrote in to to us at the Televerse with their experiences and their impressions of Klexicon and we wanted to share uh, what they had to say first up is Yuko who came in with uh, her friend Carrie from uh, Japan and uh, Yuko says, First of all, I went to Klexicon mainly to assist translating my friend, Carrie, who works in entertainment uh, and to see panels. I was curious what real-life LGBTQ women and allies are like in the U.S. What can I do on a personal level? Japan's culture loves, quote, trends, and the word, quote, LGBT is one of them. I'd like the word to stay and the people to know we are everywhere. This is only my perspective, but the climate for LGBTQ, at least in Tokyo or other major local cities, seems to be changing upward slowly. Personally, I've given up on media here because of their habit of heteronormativity and stereotypical gay maleness. They make it harder to feel LGBTQ people are much closer than generally assumed. But anyway, I expected the allies in the media panel would be educational, and it was. I wasn't really expecting to tear up, telling you how one mother's comment was moving. I guess it opened up the bitterness I don't try to feel. I'm fortunate to have accepting friends and a cousin who I'm out to. But I came to realize it isn't the same to be, quote, learning and accepting allies and, quote, accepting but indifferent people. That panel answered me on many levels. 
Now on the bright side, we're just starting to see LG characters in TV and films here since the last year or so. Anime genres are excluded since they are only treated as fantasy. A panel called Girls Love 101 was interesting to see how different perceptions the U.S. have of the same genre. We do have annual LGBTQ film festival called Rainbow Reel Tokyo, though. That said, we are still at where the U.S. or Canada was many years ago. It is hard to find LGBTQ people in Japan. Outside the famous gay area, there are so many in the closet, even though surveys show younger generations are more accepting. LGBTQ adults are likely to hide so that they won't have to quit work or be fired. It's quite easier to live. Another panel, The Early Days of Gay TV and How Far We've Come, was actually really surprising, finding out how long American show creators have been fighting. I guess it's not so different what we fight for. U.S. and Canadian TV comparisons were in every panel I saw. No wonder. Though I wish the panel schedule had some adjustments so I could see more. Overall, it definitely was one of the best weekends and a life-made experience. To have an engaging time with the actresses and the staff and the guests were generous and very friendly. The energy was incredible, but more than that, the con gave me courage. I want to remember this, how different it makes me than I already am. I am openly a lesbian when asked, but it was refreshing to see so many attendees being comfortable for who they are. I got to make new friends, too. Klexicon made me feel it is important to spread voices, however small, but make it entertaining also. Thank you for listening. That was from Yuko. And then from Carrie, we have uh, this letter. Watching the U.S. through the media and online from Japan has always made me envious. Quote, wow, they're definitely an LGBTQ advanced country. Attending Klexicon became an incredible experience for me, having been able to witness real queer women and so many of them that are considered the minority of all. Lesbian characters, especially in TV, are horrible right now, even in that LGBTQ advanced country, that they have to raise their voices through Klexicon. Well, Japan's current situation is over a decade behind where the U.S. is at. Lesbian characters are still mostly treated as if they're for porn made for straight men. Um, I work as a producer and director in Tokyo, and I honestly feel it is very difficult to tell a decent story about a lesbian character in Japan. Nevertheless, it is proven in history that American movements will influence Japan's, so I feel it is my job to tell for sure our community and society what I learned in Klexicon, the efforts of LGBTQ queer women and allies in America, and how exciting it is as much and as soon as possible. I'd also love to make Japan's decent lesbian, aka Yuri, manga, as well as animation, uh, catch on overseas. Since getting home, I've already started to plan building a website for lesbian and queer women that bridges Japan and overseas, and a con project for queer women. Klexicon definitely was a turning point and such a gift to me. Last but not least, I'd like to thank and pay my respect to everyone who participated in Klexicon, including the volunteers and the actresses. Again, that was from Carrie. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts and, and some of your reactions to Klexicon. My name is Jessica, and uh, I came to uh, Klexicon from Washington, D.C., and it was actually my first con, um, and I uh, positives and highlights for me were definitely that I feel like it created just an incredibly women-friendly space um, that really nurtured the idea of fandom um, and provided a space for people to feel comfortable expressing their fandom. Um, I felt like my concern was that I felt like it was kind of a pretty non-intersectional approach that the organizers took. Um, I feel like they kind of relegated speakers of color often to diversity panels, um, and it didn't really seem like they'd taken 
intersectional identities into account in kind of every aspect of what they did and more just kind of said, how can we make sure that we kind of check off the diversity boxes? So I would have enjoyed seeing more intersectional approaches, particularly in making women of color and trans women feel more comfortable in the space. Um, but I do think that it provided an excellent uh, opportunity to, for women to feel comfortable um, discussing television and their love uh, and their love of couples and their love of ships in in a friendly space because other cons I have heard can get pretty male dominated. What drew you to the con in the first place? How'd you hear about it and why did you decide to attend? I heard about it over Twitter um, and Twitter communities. Um, I follow um, and read Autostraddle and follow a lot of Autostraddle writers on Twitter, um, and a lot of them ended up getting invited to it uh, because I'm not particularly um, a member of a fandom. I watch a lot of shows and I follow a lot of things, but I don't strongly emotionally connect to a particular fandom. Um, at first, I wasn't going to come, and then I kind of uh, realized, I started looking at the panels they were putting together and the the speakers that they were inviting, and it looked like it was also going to be really intriguing from kind of more of an academic um, media analysis standpoint. Uh, and so that's really why I came. I was really interested in hearing the different panels about kind of where queer media representation, uh, particularly in regards to women's queer media representation, is today. Um, and to hopefully hear people's thoughts on where the gaps are, where things go in the future, and how um, uh, watchers and fans can be more active in encouraging growth in terms of queer um, women's uh, media presentation. Um, did you have a favorite um, panelist or guest, or what was your highlight? Um, yeah, my highlight of the con was definitely the... Um, a queer women of color diversity pop-up panel that happened um, after from 5 to 7.30 uh, on Sunday. I felt like it just provided um, an amazing uh, kind of pop-up space for discussions about race that don't often get to happen uh, really in life in general and certainly not at cons. So uh, getting to be there and getting to hear everyone's voices and getting to hear that discussion get a voice um, was definitely a highlight for me. Uh, my only sadness is that it happened so late and so few people could attend it, uh, but I really enjoyed getting to be in the room for that discussion. And then, of course, Sarah Ramirez showed up, which was, was always a highlight. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everybody who was still around ended up in that room. Um, but, yeah, again, when theoretically the con ends at 6. Yeah, it, it was amazing to me, actually, how late people stayed. Um mm -hmm. Uh, to, to finish up that discussion. Do you think if there is a next year that you will come back? I think a lot of it would depend on what, who was going and what panels and whether those changes had been made. Um, and then also where it was. I heard you mention in your live Plexicon podcast that you're not really a Vegas person, and I'm not really a Vegas person either. <laughs> um, so... I would prefer if it were in another place uh, as well, but um, I think it would, I think it would, but I, you know, a lot of people really did like it. So as you said, I don't want to like poo poo other people's like, um, but I do think it would, it would depend largely on um, who was coming once again, whether it looked like it was taking kind of that more academic bent 
and um, whether it looked like it was shaping up to be a little bit more intersectional in its focus. The falling leaves drift by the window. The autumn leaves of red and gold. I see your lips, the summer kisses, the sunburned hands. I used to hold Since you went away The days grow long And soon I'll hear Old winter's song We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And it's just about a year to the day since she was last on the podcast uh joining us once again to talk about this time Clexicon, which of course yeah the direct res- <laughs> like response podcast i think appropriately from the last time you were on from variety it's chief tv critic Morin ryan welcome back hey thanks it's great to be back and we were talking a little bit on email about how this felt like really full circle and like we that that podcast a year ago was such a such a I don't even know how to describe it, (laughs) but it's like, honestly, so many things were happening in real time then. And so much was going on. And I, I really, I I don't know if folks walked up to you at the con and were like, thank you for the podcast, but I certainly got comments like that. And I, and I actually think some of the stuff that I wrote was as a direct result of what, I mean, there were certain things that I was finding out about, but that you guys were telling me about. And it just, it was all like things led to each other. And the, the podcast for me was like a real like big turning point. I don't know. How do you guys feel about it? No, um, I don't think anyone recognized us until the Allies <laughs> panel if then. Um, and if they did, they didn't talk to us um, until after the Allies panel. Um, so but no, a lot of I think the big, big difference, at least personally for me, is that I'm not dead while we're recording this one, uh, which is nice. I was dead last time. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, we, I was we so enjoy sick that. last time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like you said, I think a lot of stuff just was happening in real time. And for I think for me, for both Kate and I, especially like a lot of stuff happened after we dropped this particular the segment last year. And uh, yeah, I, well, I, I think it's fair to say like that segment with you, Mo, got us invited. Mm-hmm. And it, hmm. it that so that whole conversation was really meaningful in terms of being given an invitation and uh, the privilege of being able to go and attend and listen uh, was, was a big deal. And I think it's directly because of our conversation that we had a year ago. Yeah. Wow. It was That's a, like amazing. such a huge thing for us. It's, it blew up in a way that our podcast hasn't before. Um, just the stats on that episode are just crazy. Just people listening and listening and listening. Um, I'm guessing it's, <laughs> I'm more likely to either sharing with other people who they think they thought would appreciate our conversation, but also I think just 
people who felt strongly about it just listening to it over and over again yeah um, yeah which i know i've done that before for for certain certain certainly like songs tv shows podcasts um but the the response from people the conversations that we had on social media and in email in different ways out of that was really really tremendous and really uh powerful so uh yeah as as the specifics of Claxicon, that's why we were invited to speak at Claxicon was because of that podcast last year but even wow. outside of that the conversation um that we got to have with with some of our listeners or people who just showed up for that episode uh was really affecting and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah it was it's it was it was a really it was a thing yeah <laughs> it was it was it was, th- it was, it yeah. was a thing <laughs> There's no doubt. I don't know. I don't know if I have other words, so I'm just going to leave it with that yeah. <laughs> in terms of, yeah, the conversations. I mean, it was really, it was ongoing. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it was this ever morphing thing. And um, I don't know if you guys had this too, but I think, I mean, I feel like I'm not, I would never name people, of course, but I don't, I, I'm curious. This podcast is all about me finding out stuff from you guys. So FYI. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like I actually had a ton of activity on my Tumblr page as well. And a lot of people felt more, most comfortable sending like private asks or, or messages that way. And I, I did a lot of conversing with people that way and sometimes through email and some, you know, like sometimes through Twitter. And I just, I mean, it was, it was like a community in crisis. And I, I really, um, I, I don't even know if I understood the extent of it. I mean, the first weekend after 307 aired, was like I've been doing this a long time you guys too it's like it's like nothing I've ever experienced in in terms of this the scope and the emotion and the response of it but then it kept going and I was emailing with people up till two in the morning and 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 on on tumblr with people and it was like I really felt anxious about people's you know mental health and their physical well-being you know at times and it was it was a lot yeah did you guys have that well, I'm not on Tumblr because I still don't understand how that works, let alone Instagram, which is either somehow I'm on it. And I just punch buttons until something happens. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids are all, of course, they're all on Snapchat and I don't even have a prayer with that. But on no, Tumblr... someone just showed me how it works this weekend. I'm like, I still don't get it, but I have a flower crown. But um, but certainly on Twitter, just like two in the morning. Look, there's 30 new things. Um, I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and that the people reached out and felt um, heard and respected by our conversation yeah. was so powerful and were willing to just share what they were experiencing and what they were dealing with. And, and um, yeah, it was, you know, I, I, there were obviously conversations with people who really needed to be heard. And the fact that they felt most heard by us and not by other people necessarily in their immediate circle or they didn't have somebody they could talk to about this stuff that that understood what tv right. can mean for people and what a character can mean for people and how powerful that kind of a commute especially the communal experience together the, the that narrative can be uh, i was mm-hmm. like i am happy if i can just sit here and listen and that is meaningful to you i'm very happy to do that it's kind of it's kind of bizarro to me that you you're interested in sharing with me but i want to hear it so um it was yeah, yeah it was really great well i think the other thing was that we were outside the fandom like the direct fandom communities in a lot of ways and i think that that was also something that was really significant is that it was people outside of an immediate group of 
that had banded found one another and banded together through the internet or through meeting in person and conversing about the show and watching it together either in person or online like that that bond was really strong so like it was it was felt so strongly and together through them but then like our conversation and then like Ryan's blog post and yeah. then like various other types of folks out outside that immediate fandom. I think sort of, of like adjacent yeah. but not directly inside it. Is that right? Like? Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's fair. And and the fact that like in a lot of cases like it was also just th- th- that that's what it was. I think is that it was an acknowledgement that th- even people who weren't necessarily like in the fandom were just like this is this isn't okay. Yeah. Yeah. And to have that to have that kind of message amplified in a lot of ways, either through our podcast or more much more significantly, um, as I discussed a little bit in the Allies panel, through your variety uh, writing, that that voice and that idea was being heard across a much wider uh, range than it necessarily would have been um, yeah. if it had just been the fandom itself reacting. And you know. I think that I'm really glad we did the podcast because I think honestly people people talking with each other, you know, people you know, I think all three of us are conversant in in fandoms, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And how they work and how, yeah. how they intersect with maybe the larger popular culture. So I think um I mean don't like don't downplay that. I think that was really meaningful for people to just hear voices. And as you said, I think that this was this was so unique in so many ways. I mean, it shared other characteristics with other things, other disturbances and fandom forces, if you will. But mm-hmm. but I think you're dead on when you say that these were a lot of people that in their own communities felt isolated. Like even if they um, if it, like let's let's say it's an, uh, a young person who's LGBT. Um, like what's let's say that they do have other people in their circle who are also LGBT. Um, and, but those people might not understand their depth of identification with popular culture and with this, or with this character in particular. So there was a lot that was very isolating, I think, and very confusing and difficult for people to deal with and understandably difficult. But I think that, so the, I think that the podcast had a role to play there. And then I think that I, I mean, I will be honest. I mean, I think I'm glad I wrote about it in the ways that I did, because I think that. I think that it would have, you know, like removed me from the picture. I think that people at Vox, you know, people, observant people who know fandoms, like other people, other sites were already picking up on it. It wasn't just up like, you know, IGN, various folks, like there was something brewing in terms of it breaking out from the, the, the sort of um, certain, like, I don't know what you would call it, but certain, certain areas or levels of coverage. But I thought to me this was such an interesting case study and of course a painful and upsetting one. I'm not just saying it's like interesting like a science experiment, <laughs> but it, they're, they're, they're contained for me a lot of lessons about TV in general. And I guess, I guess when I sat down to wrote, write, write one of the pieces that I think people cited to me a lot, which was on a Monday morning, it was like a week after it happened. Um, people, people brought that up to me a lot, which was very kind and, and sweet. But I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm glad that the validation helped in some way. I for sure am very glad. And I wanted it to do that to some degree, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, my brief from my bosses is to, you know, not always make something just about a show. Like I, I certainly can do something like fall down a rabbit hole with like a Homeland theory or something like that. And there that's fine. Like I can do that with any show. 
But I think with this piece in particular, what I wanted to say was it's not like every, there are lessons here for all people who um, put out television shows. And I mean, that's really one of the biggest takeaways that out of the whole thing that it, it was absolutely about tropes and about um, queer women dying, which I received a crash course education about. And I thought I knew something about that. And I really don't think I knew nearly enough. And I'm, I, I forever thank the fans for doing that. But, but for me, it was also partly about, this is about the age of people relying on social media a great deal and how that can go very wrong. Like, as wrong as wrong as possible. And I, and I mean, I don't think that anyone at any point in you know, intention is not magic. I'm certainly going to profess this with that. You know, I, it was, it was just a, a, a confluence of events that absolutely blew up into something that was reverberating for, for months. And then a year later, we still were talking about it to some degree. Um, but I really think that the whole thing with Lex's death and then how that broadened out into a discussion of queer women on television, tropes, stereotypes, damaging ways that um, LGBT characters are, are treated. Like that was, if I, I mean, I think that if that conversation blossomed a little further than it would have, thanks to stuff that we did, I mean, I'm glad about that, honestly. Absolutely. And it's something that we was talked about, uh, at least in some of the panels that I, I attended um, at Klexicon, but the the timing of when that hit and um, and how many deaths there had already been that year of marginalized groups, certainly of queer women, but just in general of women, of people of color on TV, and then it continued for the next several months. Um, like, didn't at least two or three shows kill off their female lead that year? At least, two. yeah. Not too long later, wasn't it Sleepy Hollow? Sleepy Hollow yeah. and Castle, and yep. um, yeah, yeah. That and I, I wrote about. I think, what did I even call it? The something, the death, spring of death, or something like that, yeah. because yeah. it was just. And that's, I mean, a lot of people wrote about this, so I'm certainly not the only one. But one of the pieces I wrote about a month after, 307 was, you know, who dies on TV, mm-hmm. and basically the thesis is. It's not ever Rick Grimes. Yep. You know what I mean? It's not ever going to be Daryl. Yeah. And so why is that? And I think, you know, I I think that there's, I mean, as, as I said in that piece and as I've said other times since then, and I, I don't know if you guys, there's a lot of pieces to it, obviously. It's obviously that, that the majority, the great majority of showrunners being white men is, you know, you know cisgender, heterosexual white men is part of it. Um, and then another part of it is that I think that there's this greater pressure to amp up the drama and get a buzz and, yeah. and, you know, get, have that bloody death, have that, you know, like it's not lost on me who dies on walking dead. You know, it's not lost on people who like, who pay attention, who died on sleepy hollow so that the white guy who I think is incredibly charming, um, who has already been alive for 200 years, you know, Adam <laughs> doesn't even get to 40. So, I mean, it's like you have to look at these things in the bigger picture. And I think that that's people, people need to contextualize what it is they're doing. And, you know, the, 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 the comeback that, well, people die on TV. Well, I have to be able to kill my characters. Well, I have an artistic vision. All these things are absolutely like, yes, up to a point, those things are, are true. 
but you have to examine the work you're making in a cultural context in which certain patterns come up patterns come up all the time and i think that people are so head down making their shows or so nervous about interference of all kinds from executives from networks from studios from fans that they just want to like dig their heels in even deeper and again, these are understandable responses. They are not adult responses. An adult looks at the bigger picture and, and looks at, you know, if people are flipping out about something, A, maybe I feel defensive, that's normal, but maybe B, maybe try to get to B. And maybe B could be, what is it that they're flipping out about? And you know, how can I listen? As you said, like you've said that word a few times, Kate, like listening is a thing. <laughs> you know, that people can do and and I'm not talking about any show in particular here I think in general um I think people heard you know when the when the fans rose up and that was you know that was the fans doing that I I really think that it's it's so impressive to me and part of the reason I wanted to go to Klexicon was because they didn't let it go and they formed productive and creative ways to have their point of view and their voices be heard and their information and their data and their stats. That is really key as well. Yeah. The channeling of that energy and that um, sense of betrayal and that anger um, and that grief into let's raise a crap ton of money for the Trevor project. Let's put billboards up where all the showrunners are going to drive past so that they can't say that, that nobody told them that maybe right. stop killing 50% of the queer ladies on TV. Um, you know, the, these different things that the various fandoms around the year, of the spring of slaughter last year, um, but specifically the 100 and the, the Lexa and the Klexa fandoms, um, the energy that they that they poured mm-hmm. into this, not just Klexicon, but all the LGBT, LGBT uh, fans deserve better, that that like group and that site. That's, yeah. And, and that's diff- really key. Yeah. So that when we had Orange is the New Black, you know, kill off Pusey, that was tied directly still to the, the re- response to that was tied directly to the response to Lexa mm-hmm. all those mm-hmm. months later because it had been sustained. That discussion. Right. Right. Had been sustained. And same with Root and Shaw. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people had this in the hopper. And then we're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so um, I, I mean, there. what I loved about I mean, I loved a lot of things about ClicksCon, but like I think that what's interesting to me is that the vibe of it was friendly, welcoming, positive. I didn't know that that would be the vibe. Um, respectful. And yet I think these conversations took place. I mean, there were yeah. conversations that were you know, difficult at times. There were conversations about the depiction of queer women of color on Sunday where it was such a good conversation and such a difficult conversation yet productive that the, that the, the that conversation reconvened itself. Like those people reconvened themselves in a room at like 5 PM and kept talking till 6:30 until like the hotel essentially like kicked people out. And that to me is really, really cool that, you know, I don't think that everybody walked out of every room thinking we all agree now or yeah. everything is fixed. We fixed it, solved, solved the problem. You know, it's, it's more that there were conversations and people felt heard and people f- gate, walked away with things to think about. And that was so interesting to me. I don't know. One of many things. 
So we got in, well, Noel, you got in on Thursday. I got in on Friday afternoon. Um, Mo, when did you get in and uh, what was your, what was your experience? Because you've been to many conventions. I uh, have. So I how, have. how did uh, ClexCon relate to the other cons and how do you think that just like on a purely con level, how do you think they did for a first year con? Um, I already have talked too much, so I'm just going to talk too much again so just cut me off like at some point just be like no cannot hear your voice again um because i can talk a lot uh i got in on thursday and i went to the party at the phoenix which was a bar where they were having the the um badge pickup and that was fun i met a few people i'm like here's the table from people from brazil and here's table people from australia and uh, a few folks recognized me and i will say that it was incredibly weird to walk around and be recognized and ask for selfies and that was like okay <laughs> this is <laughs> happening um i guess i mean i've been writing for i don't know 20 25 years and my picture's always been at the top of my column so it's just it's just you know people were beyond lovely let me say that first but now i'm arrogant and have a whole team of people <laughs> just feeding my arrogance and i'm eating caviar right now um so i went to that <clears throat> People seem to be having a good time um, and and just kind of the whole idea that, you know, what we talked about a minute ago, that people were in their isolated little groups. I mean, there there are crews from different places like San Francisco and, you know, Australia and whatever. But I think to, to my mind, I mean, I think some people had met in person, but I think the majority of people hadn't, you know, it seemed to me. So there's a lot of stuff happening by Gchat and email and Snapchat, like all the all of the things. But people were meeting in person, and that vibe was really fun. Um, so I was at the con, you know, all three days: Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, I had a lot of interviews set up. And just for fans listening, I I did one piece uh, on on Monday after the con. That is yet a taste, my younglings, of what is to come. I I have a, some bigger stuff planned, some about specific shows, some about this topic in a deeper way. You know, why are queer women treated, treated this way on TV? What's the deal there? So I hope to do a bigger piece on that, um, not for a month or two, though. So don't, like, don't hold me to that for, like, tomorrow. Um, but I hope to, like, break out some of the interviews I did. Whatever I couldn't use for that feature, I'll try to put into a podcast or things like that. So I did tons of interviews. Went to as many panels as I could, um, went to a couple dinners and, you know, went to the dance party Saturday night. And I have to say, I thought it was really well run. It was about 2,200 people is what I was told, all told. And it seemed like a good size for that amount of people. There were not a ton of, you know, hitches in terms of getting people into where they wanted to go. The volunteers were really nice as opposed to other cons that we could mention. And I'm specifically speaking of not mentioning any names, but San Diego Comic-Con, um, <laughs> where I've cried more than once. Um, so that's fun, and I don't go there anymore. Uh, I just I just found the vibe uh, really different, and, and just it was very friendly, and like I said, kind of like, is, is it wrong? But did you feel like it was like low-key but energized, and those things seem yeah. like they don't make any sense, but does that make sense to you because <laughs> you were there? Right. No, I think low key but energized is a really good description for Clexicon. That is really how I felt about the entire uh, two and a half days that really I was there. Yeah. And yeah, low key but energized is really, really apt, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, part of what, you know, accounts for the low key or maybe relaxed but yeah. energized is that, um, I, you know, here are people who 
are often made to feel unwelcome in the world or cannot be their full their full selves in the world or don't feel understood or don't feel like people share their interests or any number of things where they um, either have to keep something held back, have to be on their guard, have to, you know, be aware of their space and maybe just nervous or whatever in crowds or whatever out in public. And I, I just felt like, I felt like as you walk down the hallway to the Kluxcon area, people's just like layers just kind of like dropped or their defenses or their walls maybe dropped or relaxed to some degree or a great degree as it went on. And, and, and people just felt really welcomed and accepted there. And I have to say, again, would love to get your opinions on this, but the fact that it was mostly women, there were some men. Hello. No, you, you were there. And we, we love, we love the men. Um, and there were a number there who, you know, awesome. It was great to meet Ben Bateman, <laughs> Les Bro Ben, um, and other and other uh, guys there too. But um, to me, the fact that it was predominantly female changed the dynamic, and certainly made me feel something I haven't felt at other cons, which is safe and never talked over, not even a little. <laughs> so I don't mean to stereotype because that's not how all guys are, but um, I felt like there was a really um, People people felt relieved. I mean, people are talking now. I've watched some reaction videos, and I've talked to people since the con ended, and people are talking about it like it was its own space or its own little world for a few days where they felt like they were amongst their people and felt really um, just super happy to be there and could walk around holding hands. And, you know, I kind of feel of two minds about that. Like, I, I want um, people who love each other to be able to hold hands whenever they want in the world. And the fact that that's not true is something that makes me very sad. Um, but it's not okay that that's not the case, but I'm glad that people had that feeling of safety and security and, um, acceptance and celebration, you know, for that time. And Elizabeth Bridges, who has a, a blog called Uncanny Valley, and she's been very active in the fandom from the start. I read her post too, and it felt like it, it really captured a lot of that feeling too, of, of being part of a community, even if you hadn't met people in person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, overall, I think it went well. I think it was, I was really nervous. I'll be honest. I was nervous. I was like, I don't know if this con will happen. I don't know if any actors will come. I wasn't committed to coming until I felt like enough actors and creators were there for it to be worth my while, honestly. And as someone who covers stuff for the press, I felt like it was totally worth it, um, for, for what I wanted to do and what I wanted to cover, you know, in those realms. Um, so that was great. And, um, I, I generally just had, it was both useful to me as someone who's a working member of the press, enjoyable to me as someone who enjoys TV and fandoms and other fans and other, you know, neat nerds like myself and encouraging in the sense that, um, I remain to this day. I don't, I, I will always be amazed and sort of stunned on some level that the pain and the the, dis, the disarray and the understandable upset and, and, and fury that we witnessed a year ago was transformed into this. And I'm not saying that all of that is gone. I'm not asking for any of it to be gone. People's processes are what they are. But it's just so impressive to me that this is what it became. And, and the, the vibe throughout, again, getting your opinions on this, was not really about that show mm -hmm. I mean the first panel was 
And I thought the videos they showed, the fan vids were amazing. And I thought the conversation was necessary. But I think that the we- the weekend itself, I talked to other people who said this too. It felt like a healing space. And it was really about looking to the future and celebrating the present. Yeah. Like Winona Earp, like, you know, other, other fan things, you know, it just, it, it felt very, very, uh, it, it wasn't about settling scores. It wasn't about that. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it was, it was a much different vibe to me. One of the smartest things they did early on was embrace the idea of women who love women as their central, like, or, you know, like principle as opposed to just Klaxa. absolutely I think that there's no way that the con would have happened yeah had it not I and I think I mean to me one of the things that I learned was what a pent-up demand there was for this mm-hmm. yeah. like a bananas amount of demand because I think that certainly I, I'm guilty of this from my perspective as someone in the press which is um you refer to things and when you're writing about issues or this or that or the other thing, LGBTQ and this, that, and the other. I think a lot of when TV has incorporated gay characters, they've been white men. Mm-hmm. And that is that. And so that was in itself, you know, something for, for, for it not to just be about one gay man being in guesting for one episode and his only defining characteristic being that he's gay. Like that was <laughs> still some shows do that. Um, and, but like for a long time, there was either zero or just that. Um, I think we're still really not there at all in terms of representation of all these different communities. Um, but women, you know, like there are a lot of women out there who don't see themselves reflected at all. Or when they do, they do tend to die. And that's not okay. But there was just such a, I mean, I don't know, the Winona Earp panel and then the Lost Girl panel. And the panel of out actresses and the panel, like, I, I just was, they were so fun. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> F-U-N fun. Yeah. Well, and Noel and I mostly went to the academic panels. Uh, we were just like, we made you a were conscious good effort. Students. I was like, I don't want to see I don't know. Well, no, so we can compare experiences here that, that way. But it was important to us to sit in the back of the rooms. And it was important to me. We didn't actually talk about this, but it was kind of important to me to not be in. I didn't want to be taking a seat in, like, the shoot panel, for example. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, like, if it wasn't a, th- a fandom I was as into, I didn't want to, yeah, occupy space. Unless it was something I thought um, – would be interesting maybe for my article or things like that. I did, I I did go, I did go do a lot of the other panels, which I thought were excellent. I mean, I want to, I want to hear what you guys thought about the, the, uh, all the panels you went to. Well, it was Um, just a fun nerdy experience. I loved it. It was, there was so much nerd nerding out um, from, uh, and, and the, the, the engagement with uh, like the more academic stuff is, was up my alley. I, I mean, of course I love the, fan stuff as well i'm sure i would have enjoyed the heck out of the reunion panels had i been in them um Mm -hmm. my little as uh, san diego comic-con heart would have gone pitter patter but um (laughs) the you know the the uh, the one ones we went to about um like queer baiting versus uh Mm -hmm. subtext that one oh i missed that i missed that tell me Uh, about that no take it away (laughs) sure so um one of the 
one of the big takeaways from that one was uh, they had an, an uh, academic uh, there from Ohio State University who was presenting a paper, well, a paper that's being published in Transformative Works and Culture, which is a open source fan uh, fan fan studies journal uh, right. that does very good work um, that Dr. anyone can e. read. E. Yes. And uh, so it does very good work. And so she was talking, she had this very uh, beautifully academic chart uh, with axes and like vort vortices. Oh, I need to get on that. I need to have vortices in my article and then it will seem serious. And <laughs> exactly. And, but that gets published in like June. So uh, you can okay. look for that there. I'll but it, that. it was a very good, she really outlined fan and audience, really. It was grounded in a lot of audience um, response theory. Um, that I, I'm assuming it is, uh, without having read the paper, but as someone who has actually read a lot of that stuff prior to dropping out of a master's program, mm -hmm. that I could see a lot of what she was drawing on, and even the chart itself reminded me of a couple of other types of uh, fan circuit of culture type stuff. And it was just, it was a really good way of explaining how audiences respond to TV, even outside this particular concept of mm -hmm. queer representation and so i really really latched onto that and found it really interesting even if as someone who actually asked her this question was why do you only talk about genre programs with this and i just went yep. yes and because like the academic in me going peer review i just went wait a minute all your examples are this one thing but it was still just a really well executed concept that could be applied to other things she just decided to use genre programming because as we talked about in like the allies and media panel it was one of those things where genre just gets to do this a lot more for various reasons right and, right like yeah right, we could have a yeah. whole podcast about supernatural killing off the ladies yes exactly and the people and, of color <laughs> and right. i still watch supernatural so don't come at me on twitter but i think that that's a pattern yeah for sure yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, Alice was on that one as well. And she talked about okay. um, uh, specifically a lot of like children's cartoon and the subtext of the often uh, queer coded villains mm. mm -hmm. and and, you know, other, yeah. you know, they're, they so they, they had a discussion about baiting versus subtext. That was really great. Um, and uh, sorry, I interrupted you, Mo. No, I was going to say, I mean, just, it just triggered, it just thought, I, I had a thought about a pa one of the panels I saw that Elizabeth Bridges was on, you know, Elizabeth is an academic, um, she teaches at Rhodes University, and one of her subjects that she teaches is com comparative literature, which isn't exactly the subject area, but she obviously has a great deal of training in film and popular studies and cultural studies and that kind of thing. And so one thing that I learned, like that, that she's going to put a paper out, and I don't re recall which journal it is, but she started to give us sort of the some of the elements of it in one her presentation of um, barrier gaze throughout history, which is you know that was super fascinating to me. Um, some bits and pieces of this I knew, but some I didn't. Which was that you know the the term homosexual was invented in 1868, mm -hmm. and also the the term heterosexual. And then the whole idea of like one one theoretician's idea was that there's a third sex of all people who are not exclusively one or the other. So, so I'm sure people who are aware of you know like this kind of research into you know gender and identity and um, sexuality are, are super into this. But one of the things that I think came out of it, I think it it's one of the um, primary pillars of the piece that she's putting out um, in the next few months is the idea of so back in the day, especially um, even like pre uh, pre-war, that kind of thing in the Victorian area, but then also beyond people, you know, men would be blackmailed 
they would be literally queer baited into, you know, some kind of action or letter writing or some kind of thing that could get them blackmailed. And so that was, that was the queer baiting of the past. And then that went away and isn't not, not entirely obviously, but like, you know, that still happens, but I mean, it's sort of that, that one on the decline, just not coincidentally around the time that, you know, popular culture, movie and TV were coming into the fore. And once you began to be able to having to have any kind of gay character, which was, you know, for many years in the film industry, it was banned unless they had a tragic end or it was just heavily coded. You know, once in the 60s and 70s, you could you could begin to have queer characters. Um, that's when queer baiting came out. And it's a different but it's it, it, she was drawing a parallel. And it was just this was just part of her great presentation, which was now the queer baiting isn't someone being baited into getting blackmailed in that sense of just in their personal life. Now it's happening culturally where, you know, you want someone to be drawn into something and then you drop the hammer on them because there's some kind of punishment dynamic somewhere still in all of this, you know? And I think that that's, that's an interesting parallel to, to draw about how, you know, I think that one of the things that people have talked about in various pieces of coverage of the barrier gaze trope, um, it, you know, in, in, you know, another of Elizabeth's panels was talking about, uh, I think it was with, uh, what was it? Why representation matters. One of the, I think that might've been it, but it was like the whole idea that came from the Renaissance, that there is a singular artiste and the singular artiste draws from his subconscious or his artistic forge and puts forth this pure unsullied thing into the world is just, you know, bonkers. Like that just not how it happens at all. And I think that's something that it would people would do well to to understand is that we're all influenced by our cultural for like by cultural forces. And to say that you're influenced by what you grew up with and what you've seen and what you've seen a you know hundreds and dozens or just thousands of times in some cases, that's not to say that you can't still be an artist and that you can't still have a vision and that you don't have a vision. But I think there are a lot of people in Hollywood today, and this is this actually goes beyond barrier gaze. It goes to you know, the black character always dying first. It's just a million different things that we could talk about. Many people are influenced by things that they don't necessarily even want to understand because they think to pick it apart would be to somehow interfere with their artistic creative process. Believe me, I get that. I have my own creative process. I write every day. So I understand wanting to preserve your particular thing that you have. And everyone does have their own particular thing, their unique artistry that they bring to the world, their unique creativity. Yes, I want that. Bring it forward. But you can have that unique perspective, unique creativity, and still be well aware of and informed about uh, how patterns work in culture. None of us grew up on an island with just rocks to look at. Like we all are influenced by what we've seen and grown up with. And I think it's just irresponsible at this time, you know, when there are a number of people in the world who feel are part of um, oppressed and even persecuted groups. That if you're not making yourself aware that most Muslim characters on American TV are glimpsed within terrorism plots, and that's all. I mean, where do you see the Muslim family doctor? Where do you see the, um, you know, Indian-born uh, school teacher? You know, like that. That's that's a problem. It helps create and propagate a big problem. 
And so with, with queer women, you know, they can exist. They can be a supporting character. Even if they don't die, they don't exist in a world of other queer women. And I don't know about you, but if you know one gay or bisexual woman or one, you know, LGBT woman, she knows other women <laughs> who are in that world Whoa. with her. Whoa, slow Ton. down there, Mo. That's ridiculous. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. But, you know, like we, we still live in, for the most part of TV, in a world where on the broadcast networks, um, uh, the lead care, if there's a singular lead or even a lead in a, an ensemble piece, that person is probably not going to be uh, LGBT. It's just not going to happen. So that's changing some degrees on other networks for sure. But there's still this kind of tokenism when it comes from people who are um, not white and not heterosexual. And so that's, you know, we still have a ways to go. But to me, like just seeing these panels, seeing how much people loved these characters, I just think, I don't know if you guys are encouraged at all by the fact that um, there are now shows where the majority of characters blackish white people are you know secondary or you know tertiary characters on that show um master of none same thing most you know that the core characters on that are not white um insecure insecure yeah queen sugar uh take my wife Mm -hmm. take my wife is on CISO, which is a uh, pay streaming thing and i know you think i don't need another one of those but i think you can get just like an add-on for amazon it's not really expensive but it's cameron esposito and Rhea butcher created the show and it's about two women who are both stand-up comics and they get together and they're dating and they know other gay people a number of them and then they know some straight people too but it's really about their lives and you know i think that in this world to stand out what you need to is not to like kill the people of color and the gay people but maybe yes sometimes i guess that will happen it's not against the law but i think i actually think that you're it's more commercially viable to have a show like atlanta where i want to see that from paperboy's perspective you know i want to see the world from urn's point of view and their world and their friendships and i think that like actually going into worlds and communities that TV doesn't typically cover is actually not only artistically interesting and fresher, but probably more commercially viable than, you know, here's a law show about the law people doing the law thing and they're all white and they have one black friend Mm -hmm. and nobody's gay like that. Like, Oh, you know what I mean? Like, yes, that could be good not going to hate on it and it you know just in theory but like i feel like i've seen that show 10 billion times and i'm already tired just like reading the description <laughs> one of the uh most disappointing moments in uh, at Klexicon for me was at one of the panels that we went to the Nola i went to um about like the history of representation of of queer people on tv uh that looked at basically it basically just started with the 90s and Noel I know you have some thoughts on mm-hmm. that but um one of the questions for the panelists was what are the queer stories like cause, like back if you go back even just a couple decades you couldn't have imagined that we'd even get what we have now as, as far mm-hmm. as stories being able to be told but what are the stories that you aren't seeing right now that you would like to tell as writers and 
some of this might have been that they didn't want to share things, ideas that they have that they're planning to put into scripts. But the panelists pretty much seemed to say, uh, I, there isn't any. <laughs> like, you can do anything now. And I was like, mm-hmm. I was like screaming in my head, um, no, you really can't. Let's get some let's get some queer characters on TV if that's our jumping off point. How about who aren't white? How about mm-hmm. who aren't able-bodied? How about mm-hmm. who don't have money? And like there's so many right. other stories yet to be told uh that have that Yes. So, so the idea like from from that the panel uh, about that at least that I really felt like they dropped the ball. I don't know if Noel if you want to jump in here if you have any thoughts on it, but that was one of the most disappointing things. There's still so much ground to to, mm-hmm. to to be to be worked on this right and i think a lot of that was limited by their own personal experiences as well but it's also one of those things where like the big suggestion was i just want to do kind of a mundane life in the in life of a queer couple and i just went oh you want to do a gay you want to do a gay mad about you i want to watch that yeah. um because I love Mad About You, but right. I was just like, it bring that kind of depth and humor that they bring that Riser and his team bought to that particular straight couple would have been really fascinating to see with a queer couple. But to Kate's earlier point, it was just like, I, my wristband for a media historian on that panel. Um, but it, it was really like, I think a lot of it was just very much the fact that the, I think Kate was right in that they maybe didn't want to give anything away, have ideas stolen, whatever. But also just this idea that because there are these ideas of so many avenues and both of them work, um, both of the panelists work uh, with um, Tello, 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 Tello now um, a lot. And I think that's where a lot of that was coming from is like there are so many places, so many people want content. And there are so many people who can provide it that anything is technically mm-hmm. possible, air quotes, mm-hmm. But that, like Kate said, not all of that's getting out there. And also really importantly, and this is to your point, Mo, is that it's not necessarily getting out to a wider audience, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the things that I took away from like the visibility and asexuality panel, which is the first one that Kate and I went to the entire con, was very much driven by the fact that the woman presenting uh, talked exclusively about a house episode that dealt with a couple that identified as asexual. And she was just like, this is, this is, this was insane because they identified as asexual and they were on broadcast television. That's nuts. Mm. And that's huge. And then of course, you know, and that house helps ruins you all the of it. Story. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, like, I think the thing is like, I think that a lot of people are sophisticated about what they see. And I'm not saying that they're getting their master's degree in this. I'm saying, Whatever your age, at this point, we are all saturated with media all the time, for the most part. You know, you go to a restaurant and you see little kids, like, watching stuff on their iPads. And, you know, I don't judge because I've done it. But, um, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we've all seen a lot. And so the thing is, like, when I sit there and I look at the way that TV is changing, um, the fact that there are so many things colliding on transparent which you know again like doesn't do everything perfectly i'm not defending transparent as like the world's gold standard of 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 storytelling i like it a lot i certainly you know sometimes think "Hmm, maybe that wasn't so great but um the fact is that um mora's story and her children's stories and their significant others and friends stories they collide because the show is willing to encounter these issues you know 
because, you know, like Insecure is a show that's interesting because it's just, you know, funny. It's a funny romantic comedy about someone in their 20s trying to figure things out. It's really a friendship comedy in many ways, um, more than a romantic comedy. But it also um, gets at clueless white people, microaggressions, macroaggressions. Like, you know, like, like it actually gets comedy and drama out of those things. So I think for a long time, TV basically ignored everything. And it was like, you know, the conflict is that Timmy wants, you know, to go to the party and his mom doesn't want him to. It's like, okay, like that still can be a story. I'm all for it. But um, One Day at a Time, which is one of my favorite shows of the new year, is about a family being a family, but it's also about, you know, the daughter's friend, her parents are deported, you know, and that can be a plot point. Like you, like if you handle these things well, these can actually be interesting. And what the hundred found out was, so it had an unapologetically bisexual lead character and it leaned into that. And then it had this, this couple that it just took off like a rocket because that both characters were great. Both actresses were great, you know, like they just went, it just went off the charts, you know, in terms of interest and it drove the show to better, um, ratings to a higher press profile to, you know, more media attention, all that kind of stuff. And then it obviously went where it went. So, um, so I think that it's just, you know, these things are interesting to me as it's just a TV, sort of a, a, an amateur TV historian, because I just remember growing up, what could be conflict was very limited. And now what can be conflict is anything. And conflict drives drama, and conflict is also often at the root of comedy. You know, how do people deal with each other? How do they assess themselves? How do they get what they want? And these things have a much greater range of tones and ideas and conflicts and interactions that can happen now. And I'm, I'm really pleased about that. But again, I think we, we keep, you know, I, I, am always reminding people of this in the, the work that I do and many other people are too, but it's like, the fact is most of the shows that will come out this fall, like we're in pilot season. Now, most of the shows that get picked up, I'm going to, I know for a fact will be the majority of them will be written by heterosexual white men will be the showrunners. I have no, I have no, there's no doubt in my mind that if I look at the broadcast network shows for fall, the new ones for the fall, for the whole season for next year, I would bet you both a hundred dollars each that the majority of them, like that's the, the case. Because oh, that, oh, that you think we have a hundred dollars. I know <laughs> that you think we would lose it on that terrible bet. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so that's the, the issue. And I think that, um, I, I would hope that people who are looking at, um, two of the most well-reviewed series of, of like, let's look at some of the most re- re- uh, well-reviewed shows of the last few years. Um, Jane the Virgin, Atlanta, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Better Things, Insecure. Um, we can keep going down the list. Um, People versus OJ. Uh, like, not only were those, many of those, I think, if not all, um, written, created, and or directed by people of color, women, queer people, um, most of those ensemble casts are what used to be um, diversity in the past and still is for some people is like one person of color is the fourth detective. You know, that's not what those shows are at all. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so I'm hoping that TV is noticing that this is a really fertile area for them to grow artistically, creatively, and commercially, you know, and to just, to just open that world up of creators to people who are not just the same old. Yeah. There's this idea that there are only so many stories to be told and we've been telling stories for so long that eventually it all, that, that theory that there's six stories, that kind of idea. Um, The trouble with that is I, don't know how much I, I strongly I agree with that, but certainly if you start with a base group of functionally the same handful of characters, that's when you're going to run into yeah. the there are only so many stories. Yeah. If you widen what that base group of characters is, all of a sudden you open up new worlds that have never been explored in that way, in a thoughtful and a meaningful way on television. Uh, to, to so many different ideas it gives you so so much fuel so much creative right. energy for your show that when you're trying to stand out amongst an insane field of hashtag ptv or when you're trying to to rope in maybe viewers who haven't you know who, who are going to really passionately follow your show support it and keep it on the air in an mm-hmm. age when it only takes a small but passionate group to keep your, yes. your show afloat that's that's where you're going to find your strength. That's where you're going to find something new to do. And mm-hmm. and something like a convention like Clexicon just highlights that the need for that, the desire for that. One of the the things I I heard I not being in the shoot panel. So I definitely heard some of the attendees kind of cringing at the questions that were being asked. They were very sexual, sexualized, you know, and and so, some people felt really uncomfortable for the panelists being put in, and apparently they were, they were like super game and, and like, you know, and played along and, ha- and had fun. But the reason I, I heard about that and the first thing I thought was how many times have I been at Comic-Con in San Diego and some, some person stood up and made, especially if it's a guy to a female panelist, but if sometimes when it's a female panelist, to a, a fe- uh, sorry, male panelist to a female question asker, um, completely inappropriate mm-hmm. leading questions. What? So what? What stood out to me is not oh that's that shouldn't happen or that's wrong, but also but what it was was how often has have, have I seen this in a different context and everyone assumes it's fine and it's not a big it's deal. It's funny. It's funny and it's, it's okay. It's hilarious and it's okay. Right. What this said to me was here is how underserved this community is. This community yeah. is so underserved. They can't feel comfortable at other public spaces, at other fan conventions, at other academic conventions, maybe even to the same extent. They can't <laughs> ask the questions that they're getting. They're asking here. They can't engage in these conversations without wading right. through, you know, a bunch of, of territory that at Clexicon is just assumed to be understood. Right. Um, so really what it was more than, you know, I'm not going to criticize people getting a little more rowdy <laughs> at, at Clexicon um, when I've seen the exact same thing happen at, for example, the Outlander panel at uh, Comic-Con is always uh, more on Nothing the Nothing will ever side. make me want to just fall into a hole and hide forever than one Spartacus panel I went to at San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Should I tell that story or is it? Yeah, I go, for it. Okay, go for it. Okay. Okay. Um, this was, I think, 
sure, I don't know, like the third, like basically Spartacus was pretty established. It was in one of the bigger rooms. It wasn't ballroom 20, but it was, you know, like a big room. 6A or 6 a something like that. Yeah, it was pretty big. It was pretty packed. And so I'm in there and um, I won't even say who the actress was because she's lovely and she was great in the show. And I, God, I just still want to basically fall into a hole and die um but a guy basically uh what i won't even say it wasn't even it was one of those terrible like anytime someone starts something off with saying well i don't really have a question but like then you're like oh (laughs) no here it comes but it was basically him saying he ended his um subscription to playboy.com because now he has spartacus and he was directing this at a particular actress. And I'm like, wow. So she went to school and learned her craft and took the really brave step of, of bearing her skin on screen. And that's that's what you got for her in front of 2,000 people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's all just pretend that this never happened and go back in time. <laughs> because it was like, it's so demoralizing and demeaning. And mm-hmm. so I, I wasn't at that panel, the shoot panel. But um, I, I think you bring up a really valid point, which is... Um, Part of the reason that these discussions become very, very fraught is because there's so little representation that the few the few um, examples there are of representation, especially for LGBTQ women, it, it's like that's like not no one portrayal or no one show can bear the weight of everyone's expectations and desires for representation. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like to some degree, the problem is that, um, you know, I, this even was a problem. I mean, girls obviously has had its problems in various realms, but part of the problem with girls when it first came out was like, everyone wanted it to be, you know, like it has to be this, it should be that. I'm like, okay, how many 24 year old women have gotten to make a show ever? Okay. So like, that's like it, it, it the show cannot sustain every single take because it's just a show and the what we're what what it ends up being in the bigger picture is that there needs to be much more representation so that we can have all kinds of conversations and that we're still nowhere near there i mean because we're still getting relationships where it's subtext or it's this or it's that or we still have a lot of um queer people on TV who are just subsidiary or tertiary or can be killed off or only recurring or this, that, and the other. And often again, like they're not in a community of other queer people. They're not like, it's, it's just, it's something that's still, you know, and I think if, the thing is if, if, if everyone's magic bullet is, Oh, but there's, you know, which I just said, so uh, take your words back, Mo. Um, the more prestigious realms of television, have a bigger problem with issues of diversity and inclusion than anywhere else. Because I can look at the CW and I think it's more inclusive than other places I could name. I mean, I, here's the thing. I still watch CW shows. I mean, if people are wanting me to be like, like never she, how dare she? You know, it's like, I, I still think they make a number of very good shows. And um, I think that the problem when you get into the higher and higher realms, whether we're talking directors, creators, uh, executives, it's more white and more straight. And that's simply how it is. But I, I, again, like, I think we're in a transitional era this year alone, they're predicting that there will be 500 scripted shows. So how do you stand out? Maybe you kill a lot of people or maybe, um, you 
let other stories that haven't been told to death get told. You know, some things that haven't been repeated so many times that we could basically tell you the storyline in our sleep. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's the way to go. But TV is a very conservative medium. You know, you follow what's been done. You follow what's what's been successful. So that's the tension that we're in right now. And I don't, I, I don't know how it will go. I just want there to be another lexicon. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, we have run twice as long as I originally intended, so probably we should start wrapping it up. But um, I'll throw it to Noel. Uh, are there any other panels or experiences or uh, elements of Klexicon this year that, that you'd like to, to give a shout-out to? Uh, no other panels in particular, but I just I want to reiterate a lot of what, I mean, you and Mo both said about just the overall quality of everything that was there. It was a it was a really well run con. It also didn't feel like twenty two hundred people sometimes, which, considering the space that they had to work with, is really really impressive. But I think the other thing that stood out um, was that, again, I just I really couldn't get over how relaxed, low key, but high energy everything was. Even like the cosplay competition, which was a lot of little Alexa and it, it was such a delight to watch people just be really comfortable doing cosplay um in an environment where they felt very very safe which yeah. I mean uh, even leered at or touched uh, or uh-huh. exactly and so it was just it all of it was just a really great experience and it was really nice to be able to listen and um Kate you kept using the word observe on all panel but just to be present for these conversations that typically we're not necessarily present for and it was it was enlightening and it was really fascinating to watch these conversations fly by and these issues of intersection intersectionality get debated in how media deals with this and how even a convention like Lexicon deals with that and I just, it was, it was really, really fascinating. And I think that, again, to just second what Mo said, that this turned a lot of energy of frustration and anger into something really, really beautiful and something really forward looking mm-hmm. in terms of what we can, what, what can be done next time and what can be done also now, but what can be done in the future from the amount of money that they raised to the conversations that were just happening there. And the fact that that uh, queer women of color in media panel had a sequel that I hate I, that I missed because my flight ended up being delayed five hours and I could have gone to that had I only known, but all of that just fed into this whole conversation of very far and wide ranging. And I, it's just, it was such a, it was such a privilege to be there. And I was really glad they invited us and afforded us this opportunity. And yeah, so that's what I'll say. And I'll stop talking now. (laughs) (laughs) Mo, did you have any other uh, things you wanted to mention? Yeah. I mean, I think I was, you know, one, so I was worried, you know, would they get enough guests? Would there be good panels? Would there be good panels with actors, with creators, with, um, with, you know, I think really to me, yes, they got all that and that's great. And I think that like commercially to continue, they're going to need to continue that. And I've like got all these ideas of like, you know, there needs to be a uh, ladies of Spartacus panel and all these other shows that I'm like thinking about. Um, Apparently, um, uh, Dr. Bridges, uh, mentioned, uh, listeners will have already heard this earlier in the episode, but that, um, the one day at a time 
people I know. express their interest on I Twitter. I so want that. I so want that. So, I mean, I'm thinking of a lot of shows that could happen, but, and I'm, I'm super psyched and I'm hoping it will, but the flip side of that is that I think, you know, you guys have been talking about some of the panels that you went to, the smaller ones with, say, um, people who are academics or in the media or bloggers or fandom people or YouTubers and what have you. Not only were those good, and I've been to cons where they're deadly, like sm- sometimes smaller cons, like they're just not, they're okay or they're not great or they're not run very well or the discussions go off track. All sorts of things can go awry. I mean, and that's true at big cons and small cons. But for a smaller first-time fan-run con, every panel I went to that was not you know, featuring sort of like name actors or name stars was great. It was really interesting, and it was, they were well attended too. And that was the other thing. I was like, "Oh, is it going to be like, you know, four people on a panel and then two people in the room?" And it was not like that at all. I mean, the panel that I went to for um, the depiction of women of color in the comic world was like off the chain great. Like, I had to leave a little bit early because I had an interview. Um, but Jamie Broadnax from Black Girl Nerds was on that panel, um, and uh, Valerie—oh, I'm forgetting her last name—but she was on the panel too. Um, I, I, uh, it was just great. It was four. Um, I, I want to say, um, all of them were African-American and can certainly hit me up on Twitter and tell me if I was wrong about that, but they were all really well-versed and it was just such an interesting topic. And the, the conversation is different when all of those people feel like they're being listened to and all of those people represent those populations and communities and some of the women on the panel uh, were queer as well so it was like it, it was just like I would have stayed there for two hours easily because it was just fascinating and thoughtfully done and I walked out of there and I said not just for that panel but I think I said to someone if I ever go to another con again and it's you know women in comics and there's one woman or it's you know people of color in comics and it's one person of color and it's only a guy. And like, I mean, I think there's just such an incredible, I mean, people are, there's just so many smart people at Clexicon. And again, this was like the first time around I would easily happily go. I mean, I can see that if the pat, if it returns next year, just having a really full dance card, because if the panels yeah. of all kinds or the meetups or the, you know, social engagements are as good as they were at this, then I will just have trouble. Like I won't sleep again, basically. <laughs> so, and, I, and I think that really, I mean, just to bring it full circle to what something that um, both of you have said, but Kate mentioned a lot, this was a panel, this was a con where so many people listened to each other, to panelists, to their fellow panelists, to the, to the audience questions, uh, the audience listened to like, I've never ever experienced in a con environment so many good conversations that I just had with people walking around on the floor or, you know, here going here and there in panels, out of panels. Like it was just such a respectful environment where people were there to have fun, but to learn. And it was, yeah, it was awesome. Um, a couple panels I wanted to mention. We went to the uh, Queer Style as uh, visual, I want to say representation. Uh, that was really, that one was really interesting for me because the perspective that the the queer lady panelists had uh, was, and, and what their, their experience and being stereotyped based on how they dressed and the stereotypes around 
um, women who love women and the way they're represented on TV was so different than as a, as a straight girl watching TV, what I have noticed. So that was really very interesting. And the, and the, the diversity on the panel, as far as different mm-hmm. styles, like, like there, there were, there were, it was mostly pe- uh, people of color on the panel, but also just the, in their different styles. I want to give a shout out to, she's a gent. Um, Don, Don, I want to say Dominic, uh, Dom, Dominic, uh, or Danielle Cooper. Um, at she's a gent because um, she was also on a couple other panels that I saw that and was fantastic and everything but that one was really interesting to me very informative and the highlight for me was the queer women of color uh, mm-hmm. panel I really liked the first hour and then the next hour and a half the reconvened <laughs> version the reconvened the, version the sequel the squeakle yes yes um, and that only had two of the original panelists, but then they brought on two new panelists, including one of the attendees. So Noel, the uh, attendee who spoke, who was uh, who's native, was on the panel for the second. Oh, one. nice! That's yeah. great. And then you know, Sara Ramirez showed up and basically was on the panel as well, <laughs> part of that <laughs> yeah. too, which was neat. And then white people at certain points just had to talk, and I just was like, huh, maybe don't do that. You know, like I honestly like here's that I'm not saying it was wrong for white people to talk in that panel, but like Mm -hmm. it was a really incredibly interesting conversation. And I, I feel very lucky that I got to be in the room. I was only there for, I think, about half of it. But at certain points, like, you know, white fragility asserted itself. And I thought it was like really, really interesting. And I mean, not ideal. But it was like it was almost like a textbook example of like if you're wondering what white fragility is, it's in this room right now. But I think that the panelists went back into kind of like their own conversation, and, and the people in the room were talking. Like it was like the it became like kind of just like a group thing after a while, and that was just really interesting. And I think um, I think you know in our culture, just to broaden it out, we need to have those conversations, and we need to you know as a white person, I need to like not hijack them and mm-hmm. just listen. And they like the, the, the panelists and the people in the room were saying necessary things and it was respectful. It was, it was challenging at times, I think for a number of people, but the, the stuff that was being said was stuff that needed to be said. And I, I can't wait for honestly for more of that next year, because I think that there are there are conversations that need to happen in the culture and in popular culture and in the world and i i just think that that that's an environment in which i think that i have more faith than i do in other venues or in other spaces that those conversations will be productive and respectful yeah i hope i mean i i don't know i don't don't want to make too many claims for one one fan convention that just concluded its first go around but to me that was one of the many encouraging things was that um that sort of stuff happened and um it's important yeah it would be remiss of us to not mention that there are many people who did have issues with clexicon i know friend of the show sp swartz had a tweet thread on twitter about how as a bi woman she did not feel particularly welcome at at clexicon and um felt that uh she didn't attempt but that she didn't attend because she didn't feel like she would be welcomed. And um, that's something I, I did hear from uh, like social media. Um, so that th- I think that's worth mentioning. Um, I know I was uh, disheartened by 
the attendance at the asexuality panel that we went to, which I thought was really interesting and and good. But no, there was that was by far the least attended panel. Even our panel had more people at <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's which true. Is I think some sometimes there were scheduling things, and I think yes. you know I I do feel for the fact that some of the things you're not able to control in terms of like, well, if someone needs to leave or this, that, or the other, it's like, it's kind of just doing this massive Rubik's cube. But I think Mm -hmm. I I also heard things about um, from, you know, that there wasn't enough in terms of the actors invited, whether they were out or not, or whether they played, you know, who they play, like like there needs to be more women of color um, is part of the process. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, a point well taken. I mean, I think, you know, there can't, there, there, there could have been more on that front as well. And I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to say that, I don't think any of us mean to imply that we have the, like, that we're cataloging all the issues that people might have had. Um, mm-hmm. But there are, there were some. And I think that that's certainly things that are, you know, well, points well taken. And I, I, I can't imagine that the organizers would not listen. Yeah. Well, so. but, but the, my point being, there, uh, any con can improve any con you know especially in its first year um is gonna have some issues arise and I, all things considered i thought it went really well yes. like there were some logistical issues for noel and i as far as getting there but the con itself I, was very well run pretty much stayed on time for most people and very well organized and having been to other cons Austin Television Festival, where it really felt like the priorities of the people in charge were not the the experience for the attendees, whose money they already had, but for the hobnobbing with the guests and um, the press. And I've never encountered anything like that. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not even speaking of ATX. I've never been. Yeah. But yes, that is a but thing. Here, also- here the the priority was on the attendees the priority was on the shared experience this was very much it at least based on my experience there the people running it their heart was in the right place and they did their best yes and hopefully they will listen and improve if they're able to do it again in the future yeah and i and i think honestly like you know i i won't get into it because from now we've gone like seven hours over but um there there were some glitches for me as an attendee and certainly like some glitches in terms of being part of the press Mm -hmm. um and i think that um i think that's a thing that most cons go through and san diego comic-con part of the reason i stopped going is because i was tired of the lie that they want the press there because it's a lie I think it's just mm-hmm. my two cents. I think that they want the press there as long as the press is willing to be mistreated in almost every possible way. And I'm not okay with that. It's, it's just not, it's not okay to have volunteers who don't know what they're doing, don't know what they're saying, say different things, conflict, yell at people, make people cry. And uh, an array of experiences over a period of 10 years, uh, eight or 10 years where I just felt like, there were enough experiences every year that made me think, and it's just such a, they make you go through, jump through such hoops to even get into certain panels and that kind of thing that I'm just, you know, it's at a certain point, you just got to vote with your feet. So I think a lot of cons though, before they way before they get to that point, have to decide what they're about, what their priorities are, have real clarity about pursuing those goals and own them and like be clear with everyone about what they are. And so I think that, you know, if next year's con is bigger and better, which is, I think, what the goal is for them. They have to decide 
on the side of people who are covering it from a press angle, like how they are going to incorporate that because, you know, that, that will help ensure the financial health of the con, but it's like, that will require a certain level of organization. And, and I think, you know, again, like for this year being a first time, you know, that's totally, you know, I, I was overall, as you say, impressed, but uh, next year will be kind of like, you know, an interesting process to watch. And I think that they might have to, uh, you know, have a little, ha- have certain aspects of the con a little bit. Um, how am I going to put this? Uh, if more press comes, that will be a challenge that they will have to just step up to. And I, I again, like, I don't see why they wouldn't or couldn't. I just think that that'll be a challenge. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Jason, just just on the geography of the setup, I can see how that would be an issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Mo, for coming back on the podcast and for your your uh, your patience here as we went way longer than oh, anticipated. I, well, as I said at the start, I can I can talk a long time, especially oh. about this, but I oh, really so encourage. Can I. <laughs> I, I? I think people should. I mean, I'm actually like following the the the, ha- the hashtag and like looking for people's impressions. So like get out there and, and read people what people have to say and watch the videos and stuff because I'm I I'm sort of nostalgic already. Yeah. Um, as if they don't know, but where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, <laughs> thanks for asking, Kate. Um, she'll, I she'll defer the steward entourage. To <laughs> yes, <laughs> talk to my people. I don't have time for this. Um, I, you know, obviously we have a podcast too. It's becoming ever more sporadic, and I just like saying the word sporadic. Um, we have the Talking TV podcast with our pal Ryan McGee. And if you just Google Talking TV podcast, that will get you somewhere in the neighborhood of where that lives. And over at variety.com, you can find my stuff in the TV realm. You can find a link to my variety work at my Twitter page at M O R Y A N. I am on Tumblr too. Allegedly, that's what they tell me. I just will see about that. I'm not sure. Um, I also have now an Instagram, but there's a link to that on my page, and it's usually just pictures of flowers or cats. Nice. So that's where all the places I am. <laughs> In addition to this fine podcast, which I enjoy. Oh, thank you. Well, and uh, thank you once more, Mo, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. <laughs>